Amen. Good morning. Good to see you too. If you have your Bible, uh, we're picking back up in Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our series through this book, this letter. Uh, Last week, if you were here, thanks for coming back and not bailing on me this week, um, I laid out an an argument for uh, Apollos to be the author of Hebrews. This week I'm going to rebuke that argument and we're going to make a case for someone else. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, we are this morning, though, going to read this passage and lay out exactly, pick up exactly where we left off last week um, with making much of Jesus this morning. So I hope you're okay with that. I hope that's kind of your primary reason you're here this morning. So let's go ahead and read the text. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's go before the Lord this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that uh, this letter has survived throughout time, throughout history, throughout persecution of the church, that in your sovereignty you have preserved these words. So God, we are grateful. We don't take it for granted this morning that we can meet here freely, publicly in this space as so many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, meet this morning in hiding in fear of persecution. So would you help us remember that and just sit on that a little bit this morning, that what we have here, that what you have given us here to be able to meet and to open your word Uh, without fear of judgment, without fear of persecution, is a true gift, and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray this morning that we would make much of him throughout this text, throughout this sermon, and throughout each song that we sing and have sung so far. We pray that our words, that our hearts would make much of Jesus. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if if I don't know you, my name's Stephen. I've taught a few times. I'm a member of the church. I have no, people ask, Are you, what's your role? I don't have a role. I'm just here um, because I was asked to be here. So I'm thankful to be here. Um, I'm glad you are here. Um, but I'm here just to serve the church. 
And so um, I hope this morning that that's exactly what we'll do uh, together. Um, one of the things my wife was singing this morning, we have three kids. Um, it was, it's been a tough morning, very, very challenging, mostly for me. Uh, she was up here practicing, in, and I was chasing kids and making sure that we didn't burn the place down. So we have much to give thanks to God for uh, this morning, that we still have a building that we're able to meet in. Uh, there is a sticky spot in the back where some chocolate milk was, may or may not have been intentionally dumped out, um, but we will confess for that later, okay? <laughs> Uh, I say all that to say, I've been convicted lately, uh, certainly this week in preparing for this message, that we don't talk enough about brothers and sisters around the, around the world, maybe some in the country, although we don't know much about them, who meet privately out of fear of persecution. And I want to, as we dive in, I want to kind of just spend a little bit of time, if you're okay with it, just talking about how Christians meet and why we meet and what is the purpose of our gathering. And ultimately, what I hope to lay out this morning is a continuation of last week, that what we need is a robust Christology. We we must think really deeply and think really well about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the whole message of Hebrews. So if you don't want to ever come back, if you don't want to like hold out for this year and a half long sermon series, please don't forget that. We will say it again and again and again and again. This is all about the person and work of Jesus. And if we miss it, we've missed the whole point, not just of the writer of Hebrews, but of the whole point of God's word, okay? Uh, Let's do this. So um, there are parts of the world, uh, particularly in the Middle East, some parts of Africa, some parts of Asia, uh, where Christians are persecuted for their faith. The, the, The fact that we're gathered here, I have no idea how many people are in here. I'm really, really bad at guessing numbers, but let's just say there's 200 people in here. Is that close? No, 100 people? 75 people, it looks like more than 75. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I'm not great at it, but I think I'm better than that. Um, they don't get this, they don't get to do this. There is no large gathering. It is you get Christians in your town, in your city center, and if you have access to one Bible, that person would bring the Bible. There's one within the community, and then somebody is responsible for just reading God's word. That is how they gather. They sing. Um, sometimes they whisper the songs, but they are singing praises, shouting out loud through their whispers the greatness and glory of God. And so the fact that we get to come here week after week after week, I'm afraid that we can just get used to it, that we, don't, we just take it for granted and we don't really resonate, we don't think deeply, we don't posture ourselves in prayer to give thanks to God that we can come as brothers and sisters and publicly sing his praises. And so I want to start that way. I don't, want to, it's not, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I'm so you're all like, oh my gosh, it's so sad. Well, it is kind of sad. But there's so much for us to give thanks for. And there's also great work for us to do, right? The, the, the role of the Christian is to bring that good news so that there might be other pockets where people might fear persecution, where Jesus' name is proclaimed. That's our job. Where there hasn't been heard the good news, we must bring it there. Where there is darkness, we must shine the light. And that ultimately is what the writer of Hebrews has to say. So the main idea this morning is not that. That was a rabbit trail, and I started off that way, so we're off to a hot start. But the main idea really today is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. And this is from Al Mohler. He writes this in his summary of Hebrews. He says, by becoming a man and experiencing the trials of temptation and the agony of death, Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, destroys the power of Satan He helps those who are being tempted, and he provides the full propitiation for the sins of his people. 
That is what this text is all about from verse 10 through 18. So let's dive in. If you were in family group, you've already kind of worked through. We had some great discussion in our group this week, particularly around verse 16. We're not going to spend a lot of time there this week, although we will try to find an avenue to to have the conversation around angels. So if you've been paying attention over the last month or so, the, the theme of angels has come up quite often. Here's the main takeaway, if you'll allow me to do this briefly. Angels were not created in the image of God. Man was. Okay? So Jesus did not come to save the angels. He came to save us. All right? So as we read through, certainly when we get to verse 16, just remember that. And we'll come back around. I don't know how we'll do this or where we'll do this. or If, if we don't do it, we'll figure out how to do this. But do some real teaching around the role of angels, who they are, what they are, what they do, how they do it. Okay? Um, Jesus is better than the angels. Flat out. So when you like let go of the steering wheel and you say, angels take the wheel, that's not, that's not the song. It doesn't work like that. Jesus does it. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks for being here. All right, verse 10, let's dive in. Let's just let the Lord speak. He says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Now we're talking specifically about Christ, okay? All things. That's, so that's everything. You got that? It's literally all things were created by him and for him in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering is the prerequisite for salvation. In the Old Testament, uh, in Leviticus, which we kind of studied before we kind of took a deep dive into Hebrews, we didn't spend as much time in Leviticus. That would have been very challenging, just so you know. Um, We might do that some point down the road. But as we dive into Hebrews, we used Leviticus as the diving board to get there. And basically, all of Leviticus is laying out God's law of how God's people can be reconciled to him, okay? Even Leviticus is Christological in nature because all of those laws and all of those sacrifices must come to completion at some point, right? So if you bring a goat or a lamb or whatever you have at your house, we have a shih tzu, um, whatever you have at your house, you bring to offer to the Lord, Right? That would be devastating. I'm so thankful we don't do this anymore. Can you imagine? It's like none of us have goats or lambs anymore. So you just like, you bring what you got, right? You got your hamster or you, whatever. I don't know if you're allowed to even have pets in college, but um, I had a teammate in college who had snakes, and I'm pretty sure they were straight from the devil, um, which we will talk about today as we continue. But whatever you had, you brought to sacrifice to the Lord in order to be made right. Here's the problem. It was temporary. So whatever you brought was just for a moment if you will, of salvation, just a brief experience or a taste of what's to come. Even those sacrifices were not good enough to eternally reconcile us to God. That's why Jesus had to come. Do you understand that? So he didn't come to necessarily throw the law out the window. He came to fulfill the law. And that's why Hebrews matters, because we're leaning on that law as we work through this letter but we're saying that Christ is the full completion of the law. There wasn't a single dot or iota that he missed. Okay, he came and he lived a perfect life, which is what we're going to go through today. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. I want to stop really quickly because this is a, this is a very pivotal passage, piece of scripture that we must really wrestle with. What does it say? It says, For he who sanctifies. So who does the sanctifying? Christ does, right? Oftentimes in the church, we feel like sanctification is our hard work, 
okay? We take, we take sanctification and we legalize it. We, take the, we, we grab for the law again, right? And we think, well, Lord, if I come to church every week or if I do the thing, if I read my Bible chronologically like this guy who comes up every now and then beats his dead horse, read your Bible chronologically, right? That if I do all of these things, I might be made right or at least be made presentable to you, to you again. That's not, we don't do, we don't sanctify ourselves, Sanctification is a gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. All right? So it's He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. Right? So we're saying the same thing, and now we're saying it again that sanctification comes through Christ and from Him alone. Right? It is a gift from God. That is why He, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, because He knows that when he stands before the Father, we're not standing there in all of our baggage and all of our sin, but he stands in our place, and he says, they are with me. These are my brothers and sisters for whom you sent me to, right? He came for us to bring us back into right relationship with God the Father. That is what this whole passage, what I love about verses 10 and 11, is it's a really beautiful, succinct summary of the gospel. Did you hear it? Listen to it again. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. So if the gospel begins in Genesis, which it does, begins with creation, then we have that. In bringing many sons to glory, as we move from creation through the fall, right? Fall removed us from glory. Uh, Eden, where Adam was before the fall, was all of God's glory, Right? He was in perfect relationship with God. He walks with me, he talks with me. Okay? That's what Adam had until he didn't. All right? And then he says, uh, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So you have creation, you have the fall, and now you have Christ's incarnation. His incarnation is him coming to earth. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about his incarnation, specifically around some heresies in the Christian church. We want to say the historic Christian church because it makes us feel better about ourselves. All these heresies that I will lay out in a few minutes are still present in the church today, unfortunately. But for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The moment of glorification... Which, so now we've got, let's go through this really quickly. I don't want to lose you because of these words, right? Let's give some definitions and walk together if you'll be patient with me. Okay, at the beginning, we have creation. This is where all things were started. God kicked off creation with his words, right? He spoke and there was. You know this story, right? This is Genesis 1. God spoke and there was. He created all things, including us, right? In our desire to be like God, instead of, instead of to be with God, we chose to sin, Right? And then sin entered the world. Now there's this disruption. Now man is apart from God, constantly trying to figure out how to get back to God. And so we put all these things in place in order to do that. We still do this, okay? Let's don't say, let's don't put this all off on someone else. We still, we still do this, okay? We try to work our way back to God, but in our inability to get back to God's grace, God sends Jesus. Amen. That's one of those ones. Maybe we should like put it up on the screen, like and I press a button, and you all just say it without me having to cue you, except for it's up there, right? That's one of the ones where we shout for joy, because he has come to save us. Okay, right? All right, all right? So in his incarnation, in his coming to earth, he dies, 
There is a crucifixion. It's a literal death, an actual death. Heart stops beating. The brain stops shooting the things. And, like, there's no blood running through his veins anymore. He's dead, dead. Like, dead. Okay? He goes into a grave. They cover it up. He's still dead. Three days later, he's not there. Okay? This is why we celebrate Easter. And we do Easter each week. Did you know that? Every week, we come in here and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. However... Salvation is not yet complete. We hinted at this last week. We are still waiting for Christ to finish his work in glorification, in his return when we are made finally right, right? When he comes back to defeat death, the devil, and a grave, okay? So now you kind of work through this whole gospel narrative in these first two verses. Verse 12, he, the, the author the writer, the speaker, pivots. And now he goes back to, you've seen this theme, where he's constantly relying on the Old Testament, specifically the Psalms. Last week it was Psalm 8. This week it's Psalm 22. And listen to what he says. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14 says, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. This is the Christian gospel. Unadulterated, not impeded, just very clear and very simple. So what I would encourage you to do, last week you heard me, and I hope you heard me clearly lay out a deep conviction for us to study God's word really, really well. Did that communicate last week? I'm hoping it does, if you were here. If not, um, I didn't do well, so I'm sorry for that. But if you heard anything last week, it's a plea, a desperate plea, in fact. I'm okay to say that. For us as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to study God's word. It was laid out in the author of Hebrews, and that was really my only point last week. This week, it's all about Jesus Christ, all of it. And what I want to do is I want to lay out a Christological view, not of just of Christ, right? Christology just basically means the study of Jesus, okay? So I don't want us just to study Jesus so that we know more about him, right? We can do that in classrooms. You can do that through theology textbooks, but the more we know, if it doesn't transform our affections towards him, it's just, it's empty knowledge, right? So you can go to seminary, which I have done, some of you are doing that now, and you can study. I knew guys in seminary who were saved. God used seminary to save them. That at some point along their journey, they felt a call to preach the gospel, yet they had not yet fully grasped the gospel, okay? That happens in the church today where you can grow up in the church, spend your whole life here, and never really know Jesus. And to me, that's the, that's the greatest fear that I have as a pastor, as a dad. My kids grow up in church. They're here every week that we're here, right? So if they grow up around it, how easy is it them to never be transformed by the goodness and grace of Jesus, right? So just the fact that we come here is not enough. We must know and understand that God must do a work and so what I'm hoping this morning is not to lay out more information so that you can check off the boxes on your seminary application of like, well, I know that Jesus is this and this and this and this and this, without actually believing it and then allowing that to transform your affections to worship him well. That's why we study God's word. Back to last week. 
Why do we study Jesus Christ? So that we might love him more. Because I know in my sinful nature, there are days where I don't really love him well. And I just threw myself under the bus. I'm not going to put that on you, but I know it's true of you too. There are days when it is hard to follow well after Jesus. And what do we do in those moments? There are two things. We recluse and we run away, right? Or we dig in. We lean on the knowledge that we have to stir our affections that we might recognize and fall in love with him every single day. Okay, that's why we do this. That's why we study God's word the way that we do it. Let's, let's go through this. Verse 8, 15 says, Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you start to hear this theme of death and slavery kind of being the same, the same thing? Okay? And the author is trying to create this stark contrast between life, freedom, death, and slavery. Okay? Those things are very, very real. Listen to verse 16. It says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. When Christ comes, it's like an incursion where he just comes in and he takes over, right? Well, there's no longer, we, the, the old way is out, right? Now there's this new way. That's why we often say it's like this, this newfound freedom in Jesus because the old thing was death and slavery. That is not fun. There is no freedom there. There's no hope. There's no light. There's no life. And yet with Christ, there's this newness, there's freshness, this reality that it's not because of what I'm doing, but on my behalf, someone stood in my place. And that is the work of Jesus in the world. That is the work of Jesus in the world today. Verse 17, we continue to see this. There's this word therefore again, which we laid out very grammatically last week, right? What is it therefore? So we're going to keep pointing up. The author keeps doing this, by the way. So this is not like the only time that he's doing this. Throughout the rest of the book, he's always pointing back. So pay attention in your family groups, in your own Bible study. Always circle those words and go back and say, okay, why, why is this? Is it a transition or is he going back and proving the point that he'd already laid out? Okay? In this case, he's proving his point. We're not transitioning yet. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, is a word we're going to work around, for the sins of the people. Verse 17 is kind of a punch in the face, all right? There's a lot in it. It's a big verse. It's a weighty verse. I want to use this to kind of jump into some of these Christian heresies that have presented itself throughout the history of the church. Okay, I'm going to do these as briefly as possible. One of the things you need to know about me, if you didn't already know this, um, I really, really enjoy church history. So my degree from Dallas Seminary is in spiritual formation and historical theology. All that means is I didn't have a ton of friends, okay? I spent a lot of time reading church history and studying the early church, particularly the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth centuries, okay? That was kind of my niche, if you will, okay? So these things, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about how did they, how were they laid out, how did the, the heresies evolve into where they are today, but what I want to do is just ra- lay out a brief outline, okay? Just know that there's a lot more work to be done. Um, if you're curious, these are some funky words. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to write them down because you're like, I'm not sure how you spell that word, uh, all of these words are currently red dots on my iPad, they want to autocorrect to something else. So uh, come up afterwards, and I'll give you these if you need them, okay? The first is docetism. 
Okay? Docetism is this idea that Christ only appeared to have a body, okay? that he wasn't actually human. So he wasn't truly incarnate, which means flesh and bones, that he was just a ghost. All right? He was a ghost that was on earth and he roamed the earth, but he wasn't truly human. No blood, no bones. All right? uh, he, this came out of Gnosticism. Have you guys heard of Gnosticism? That's probably one that you have heard of. Uh, has anybody heard of Docetism? I'm just curious. A couple, yeah. Um, have you heard of Gnosticism? Okay, so Gnosticism is our modern day form of docetism, okay? We still, there's still a lot of Gnosticism in the world around us today, okay? Um, this idea is that all matter is evil, okay? That's what the Gnostics believe. So anything that's hard, okay? Anything that you can touch, smell, taste, sense, all of those things are evil, okay? Um, so God couldn't be those things. So they separate his human nature from his divine nature and say he just appeared to be a man. Does that make sense? All right. So by denying his body, they also deny what? The work that he accomplished with his body. So there's no death. There's no crucifixion. It was an appearance of death. That doesn't, ha that doesn't save us, by the way. Okay? That's just the reality of it. If Christ wasn't really a man and he didn't really die, we still need a Savior. That's the gravity of that. Okay? Uh, that's why we call them heresies. All right? These are not the Christian doctrine. And we had to fight for this back in the day. And I, and I would argue we're still fighting for some of these things. Okay? The second is adoptionism. All right? We see the language of adoption a lot in Scripture. In fact, it's one of the real beauties of the gospel is that we have been adopted into God's family. Right? And one of the things I love in the world today is there's, there's, a, real, there's a real intentionality around adoption right? and eliminating children who don't have families. There should be no orphan where there is a Christian. Okay? That is... That is the Christian ethic, and we must work for that. But adoptionism, okay, is the idea that Christ was adopted, okay? So here's what this looks like. This denies the preexistence of Jesus, okay? So from the very beginning, Christ was not. That's not Christian, okay? Christ has been, he was, and he always will be, okay? The way that the Trinity is defined, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is they have always in eternal existence been together, Right? So the Father, in his good nature, didn't create the Son in order to create a sacrifice to provide to his people. Jesus has always been co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. Okay? So Jesus' resurrection and uh, position in the Godhead was a reward for Christ's good behavior. That's what an adoptionism would say. Okay? That, that Christ's exaltation, the fact that we're reading him and that in some of our Bibles his the words are in red, is the reward that he received for being a generally good guy. Okay? How do we see this play out in our world today? We still, this one is very much still in the world today. How do we see it? We see it particularly when we identify Jesus as a good teacher. Right? You might have professors, you might have people in your world who have said that before, that well, Christ was a good moral teacher. Right? He taught us good ethics, but he's not a savior. Right? So we rob him of his divinity, his godness, when we do this. Okay? So now we see tensions. Docetism robs him of his humanity. Adoptionism robs him of his deity. Okay? The third one is Apollinarianism. <laughs> cool word. There's a lot of letters in there. Um, I tried to have my six-year-old say the word. It, it was amazing. We should have recorded it. But Apollinarianism denies the true and complete humanity of Jesus. So now do you see themes? Every heresy, is Christological heresy, is pitting his divinity against his humanity or his humanity against his divinity. Okay? So Apollinarianism claims that he did not have a human mind but a divine mind. So he was physical, okay, flesh and bones and all the things, but his mind 
was not a human mind. Okay, so what does this look like? Uh, when Jesus learned to walk, he didn't have to like struggle through learning how to steps as a as a child, right? He didn't have moments where uh, where he would have thought thoughts, right? Human thoughts. Well. What Hebrews is saying is that he faced the exact same temptations that we did. Well, the only way to know that is to feel the weight of depression. The only way to do that is to feel the weight of anxiety. The only way to do that is to feel the weight of infidelity or whatever. Not saying that he did those things, but he must actually feel the weight of those things. Does that make sense? For him to actually stand in our full and complete place, every sin that humanity has ever experienced, he had to feel the complete weight of it. Okay? So if he only had a divine mind and not a human mind, that leaves him unimpacted by those things. God is perfect. He is sinless. He is holy. Jesus is all of those things, and yet he takes, he steps into our place fully, body, soul, and mind. He was an actual human. He literally died. Okay? We're going to keep going back to that point. All right? The third one, or fourth one, I don't know where we are. Uh, Fourth one just for the record, uh, is Arianism. We're going to spend a little bit of time kind of debunking Arianism because this is the catapult that led to a, a really robust Christian movement around Christology, specifically the Nicene Creed. Have you heard of this? Okay, the Nicene Creed. I'm going to read it, so you're going to be familiar with it by the end of this morning. But Arianism basically taught that Jesus was created. So just like the ants and all the stuff, the mountains, and you and I were created, Jesus was also created. Okay, so what does this do? Does it rob him of his humanity or his deity? It's his deity, right? God cannot be created and still be God, right? Yeah, I'm right on this one, okay? All right, the fifth one is Nestorianism, which teaches that Jesus had two separate persons. So Mary only gave birth to the human part of Jesus, not the divine part of Jesus. Okay. Uh, It had had legs, but you're like, what? Some of these things you're like, really? We still see this stuff, you guys. This is why we're going back and we're leaning on it. This is important stuff. The last one's Eutychianism, and this is, this is the one that teaches that Jesus had a third and totally different nature. So it wasn't divine, it wasn't human, it was something other, okay? It doesn't make sense either. That one's really hard to get behind, but people did, okay? And people do, right? So it's not that Jesus was like, he was like us, but he was different, right? The, all of these things, basically, they go one way or the other. Either Jesus was not human or he wasn't God. But we stand here today and we say, no, no, no. He was perfectly God and he was perfectly human. If you, have, um, if you still have your Bible out, I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read this really quickly. If you don't have this, trust me, I'm reading from the Bible, okay? Um, it says this. This is in verse 4. He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're talking specifically about Jesus, okay? 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let me tell you something really quickly. This verse was used by the heretics to say that Jesus Christ was not fully human, okay? Read it closely. I'm going to read it again. I'll read it a little bit slower. And being found in human, what does it say? Form, okay? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, this is where the, the authors of the Nicene Creed really dug in 
and really we're fighters for our faith today. The idea that we still have biblical text, that we have a robust Christology in the church today is large in part due to their hard work to root out heresy at the beginning of church history. I'm going to keep reading in Philippians. It says, verse 9, um, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's pretty good stuff. Yes, it is. Okay, it's good stuff. It's very good stuff. This passage is where we get this idea of kenosis, that, that God, Jesus got rid of his, his godness. He didn't do that, right? He did lay some things aside, okay? He humbled himself, right? The re- relationship between a father and a son. It's different in the Godhead because they are equal, but they are subservient, right? Jesus places himself below the father as he comes into earth on our behalf, Okay, it doesn't make him less God, it just makes him one of us, all right? That had to happen. So this idea that Philippians is laying out is this idea that Jesus, while being fully God, had to lay down some of his godness in order to be fully man, okay? It doesn't make him less God. It just says, the idea that I could be in a million places at the same time, I'm going to lay that down for just a minute, okay? Does that make sense? All right. This is beautiful stuff. I want to read now the Nicene Creed as, for, as we close down. So the Nicene Creed specifically was written to contradict the Arian theology, which is this idea that Jesus was created. Okay? And I'm going to read it slowly, so bear with me and be patient. But I want you to really lean into these words. And I'm going to change the eyes to we's because I think this is our anthem still today. Okay? So this was, this was like 325, somewhere in there. So this was very, very early in Christian history. Okay? and specifically written to combat Arianism, although it combats them all. It it writes this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And, this is where we get into the real work, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light, of light, very God, very God. Begotten, key word, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. This is what the Arians had the problem with. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate He suffered, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe, we believe, in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy, Catholic, or universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the, rem- for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 
Amen. This was a legitimate fight. The Arians were in the room when this was created. When this document was written, there was beef, there was tension, there was fighting that was happening, and this is a good fight. If you've ever paid attention on your drive or your, however you get to church, if you take a scooter or whatever, however you get from there to here, uh, and I know we all don't live here, we live in Gainesville, so we drive by, past a lot of signs, pay attention. There is a sign in front of a church right over here that says uh, deeds over creeds because words or because actions matter more than words. This is, I'm not going to put this on them. Those statements, though, root out of this type of heresy. If all we have is good works, but there is no good news, those are not truly good works. If Jesus came only in form, but not in substance, we must need another Savior. Deeds without creeds are useless. They're just good works with no good end. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope this morning that together we would allow the authors of Christian history to point us to a true and better Jesus. Jesus as the Son of God, fully human, fully God, who came on earth to save us. He died a real death. He rose a real resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we gather today with the hope, the tension, the aspiration, the, this, we're clinging to the fact that he will one day return to complete the work that he has started in us and for us and on our behalf. Jesus came to be our rescuer. That is the Christology that we must lean into every square inch of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, the good work of the, the early church fathers who fought. They fought for good theology. They fought for making much of Jesus. They fought for making much of the full Trinitarian nature that you have revealed yourself to be as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's my prayer this morning that in the atoning work of Jesus, in the propitiation that you have provided for us, making us right to you, that we would never take it for granted. Would you remind us of it every day? Would we be good stewards of the words that you've left us with in your holy book? Would we be students and proclaimers of these truths? Father, I'm more than ever convicted that knowledge without worship is nothing. And so the more we learn about you, would you help our hearts to, to sing those cries and to sing the character that you are to spurn us to worship would you change us from the inside out? God, we pray now collectively that our deeds, the things that we do in the world, would be the things of you. That our words, that our creeds would, would proclaim loudly who you are. So more than anything, we pray that in all things that we would make much of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one that we hope to come quickly. We love you and we pray in his beautiful name. Amen.